0: Heavenly Father, every good and perfect thing comes from you. You never waver in your goodness. With a word you spoke the universe into existence and through Jesus the word, the word who was with you in the beginning, you brought us out of darkness and into light. And now through the work of your spirit, our nature that was twisted is reborn and made alive to you. Our feet are set on the path of renewed creation founded on your good order, with your son as the head of all things. Lord, we, ha- we confess that we have joined in the sin of elevating our authority above yours. We all, in some way, have decided for ourselves what is right. As the world has tempted us, we have not been able to withstand our wants. We've rebelled against your wisdom. We've sought to build kingdoms of our own. We've justified our lack of love for our neighbor we've neglected the marginalized, we've overlooked injustice, we've been greedy with resources you have so generously provided for us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would leave no corner of our heart unlit as we tremble for the sin that may be hidden. And as our sin is exposed, give us the urgency to repent. Every moment is full of your grace and a fresh opportunity to be found in your will. Help us not to pass up this moment. Father, we're thankful for the unity you're building in us as you build us into a community of faithful disciples. Keep us united in the gospel. The royal announcement of the true rightful king is the best and most important news. Keep us from elevating any ideology above that. Keep us from elevating any secondary doctrine above the gospel witness we proclaim to the earthly and heavenly realms. We pray that our love for you and for one another would allow us to be humble and compassionate with each other. We thank you for the gospel witness of other churches across our city, state, country, and around the world. Let their faithfulness keep us from pride and exceptionalism of all varieties. Help us to see clearly that this world is not our home. We are exiles here. Help us to use this status of exile to call more and more people out of the kingdom of this world, and into your kingdom of light. Keep us from aligning with this world, as that would dim the light you give. Open our hearts to your word now, and use it to conform us more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat. And you can grab your Bibles and open up to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And get your pens and notebooks ready, because we, as has been the case in Daniel, have a good amount of stuff to go through. As we find ourselves in the fourth chapter of Daniel this morning, I'm really excited because this is personally, selfishly, one of my favorite chapters in Daniel, because of how power-packed it is in terms of its symbolism and its ability within one chapter to speak the entirety of the gospel story. But symbolism is difficult, isn't it? My experience with symbolism as a pastor is that there are those who become prideful at being able to use symbolism, and they sometimes go overboard and begin to take things that are not intended as symbolism and make them symbolic. Suddenly everything in the Bible is a symbol. But then on the flip side, there are also those who, because they can't automatically see the symbolism that's being taught, they might feel humiliated. And throw up their hands and say, I'm never gonna understand the Bible, why even try? I have to leave it to those special people who can interpret it. Symbolism, like our story today in Daniel 4, often leads to either pride or humiliation. But symbolism is not as easy, nor as hard as we try to make it sometimes. To make sure that we're not overdoing the use of symbolism, we want to make sure that we are only using symbolism when it is intended by the Bible. And we know when it's intended because of what's called the genre that we're in. Genre is a word for the category of the book that we're reading in. If it's a genre like apocalyptic or revelatory, or if it's a uh, text that's described as a vision, like our text today, a dream, then most likely it's symbolic, and the, the Bible intends it to be symbolic. But then we also need to realize that symbolism in the Bible is intended to be understood by anyone. Anyone who deeply studies And pursues God's word. It's not meant for a special anointed few. And as I will show you today, the symbolism in chapter 4 of Daniel is in plain view. We just need to open our eyes up to it and read the Bible as a whole. But even beyond that, our minds are wired for it. Did you know that you guys are all wired to be experts on symbolism? Did you know that? Here's how I know. Why don't you guys tell me what this symbolizes? Go ahead. Apple, Mac, yeah, absolutely. Computers, technology, good. How about this one? All the, all the vegans in the room are like, what is that? It's McDonald's, hamburgers, beef, right? And for those of you that have other idols, how about this one? Just joking. The Blazers, basketball, NBA, yeah, very good. See, your minds are wired for it. You're experts on symbolism. And the difference is that you are submerged and bombarded by these symbols daily. If we were to immerse ourselves in the Bible to the same degree as we immerse ourselves into the marketing of the world around us, we would most likely, likewise, be able to interpret the symbolism of the Bible no problem like the Hebrew scholars of old. If we understand these things, we will not feel prideful when we find symbolism in the Bible as if we're part of a special academic class nor will we feel humiliated by symbolism because we don't automatically see it. So friends, my goal today, as we walk through the symbolism in this chapter, is not for you to think that I am super smart, nor that I have the special holy anointing, right? That's not the goal. And it's merely, uh, what it is, is merely an act of being your trail guide, taking you through what's already there, and ultimately, to cast your eyes on the amazing nature of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he desires you to study his word to the point where these pictures jump off the page at you so that you can see these same things. And friends, it's not just me. I didn't come up with this. Many men and women laid the groundwork of what we're going to walk through today as trail guides for me, and I want to do the same for you. If you're familiar with a guy named Tim Mackey, who does the Bible Project up in Portland, he discusses some of the same symbolism I'm going to talk about in some of his discussion of Daniel. And so if you've listened to his podcast, you might go, oh, I remember that. And so again, there's no holy anointing. There's no special class. There's there's just the Bible, and we have to immerse ourselves in it. But before we get too deep into the symbolism contained in this chapter, let's start with just a high-level view and make sure we understand what is obviously in front of us in this text. This chapter, chapter 4 of Daniel, begins and ends with two bookends that we call doxologies. Everybody say doxology. Doxology is a fancy word for proclamations of praise to God. You can think of them as bookends that contain a story in the middle, and the middle story is that of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody say Nebuchadnezzar. A simple way to see the structure of this chapter alone is this. You can write this down. The two bookends are the glorification of God, doxology, and in between is the pride and humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is a story, put simply, of pride and humiliation, but surrounding it is the glory of God. And that's why I've entitled the sermon today, A Story of Pride and Humiliation. A story of pride and humiliation. Now, at the center of the structure sandwiched between the doxologies is the telling and interpretation of a dream, which we'll look at today, the first portion of it, and a short story about the playing out of that dream, which we will get to next week. But again, the storyline is this tension between pride and humility. And my hope is is that it will resonate with all of us because it's the story of our lives, the tension between pride and humility. Now, look with me at Daniel 4.17 specifically, And this one verse captures the point of the entire chapter. It says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, we'll talk about what that is later, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High, the Most High God, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest or humblest of men. The simple contrast of pride and humiliation is at the core of this chapter. And next week, we'll look at the very practical narrative of how this tension plays out in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but then also how humiliation and pride play out in our own life. The question is, will Nebuchadnezzar stiffen his neck in his own authority, or will he bow in humility to Yahweh? Tune in next week to find out. But what I wanna do today is to do the groundwork that will get us very much in the mindset to hear the fullness of what we have to walk through next week. So to do so, I wanna examine the symbolism within this chapter so that we can see biblical themes that connect the pride of Nebuchadnezzar with the pride of the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. And this will then point us to the deep need we have for the good news of the second Adam, Jesus the Christ, our savior and king, the one who was humbled humiliated on the cross so that mankind might be forgiven its sinful pride. To see this theme, we're going to go back to Genesis, and then we'll look at the theme as it's played across Daniels 1, 2, and 3 and into 4. So to get there, we need to go back to the beginning of our Bible. Would you go there with me to Genesis 1? And then we'll come back and read Daniel 4 a bit later. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. And what we're going to see here is the first point for today if you're taking notes the symbolism of the Garden of Eden contained in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. The symbolism of the Garden of Eden contained in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Look with me at Genesis 1:26. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock." over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion, in other words, reign over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And there was morning, the sixth day. Here we have God's good ordered creation. He's created every piece of the cosmos, including the vegetation and the beasts that dwell on the land, the air, and the sea. And on the sixth day, he creates a special creature, a special beast, if you will, one who is similar to the beasts in one sense, but far different, in that within this creature, mankind, He has placed the ability to reflect his image. And in reflecting him, the man and the woman would have dominion. They would reign over the earth and subdue it, all that's in it. They were to be God's sub-regents, his sub-kings, his assistants, if you will, in reigning over creation, everything from the vegetation to the beasts of the field. Chapter 2 of Genesis then zooms in on the story specifically of mankind. Do you guys recall from previous sermons what the Hebrew word for mankind is? Adam, very good. A couple of you got it. Adam, 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 okay? Look with me at the story of mankind, Adam, in Genesis 2, 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God, Yahweh God, had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. There in the middle of the garden, the center of the human world at the time, God planted what? What did he plant? A tree, a tree of life, and a river in the midst of the garden. Between the two, the the tree and the river, everything in God's kingdom was cared for. All the beasts of the field, the sky and the sea were provided for. And to the Mesopotamian world, these rivers were the life Blood of their land. Without the rivers, they would die. And all God asked of mankind in response to this provision was obedience and trust that what they needed, they could take from the tree of life, and to trust that they should not eat of that which was forbidden, the tree of knowledge. God warned them that when they disobeyed in pride, they would be under the authority and the enslavement to death. They would die to the possibility of righteousness. God then created a helper to help Adam walk in obedience and fulfill his mission to reign as sub regent over the kingdom of God because, friends, we cannot serve God alone. Now, fast forward with me to Genesis chapter 3 just a little bit later and look at the story of the fall. Genesis 3.1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The beast For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And friends, this idea of knowing is not just a recognition of good and evil, that they'd see it, but that they would be the ones proclaiming it. That's God's role. He is the one who proclaims and declares what is good and evil, okay? Then he says, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And friends, he hasn't lost Adam here. He's simply saying, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Thus we have the beginning of all human marital discord. (laughs) I heard a lot of amens there. What's up with that? Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. The word there in the Hebrew is tzerah. It means seed. Really quickly for you anatomy geniuses, do females have seed? No, who do? Men. So this is a virgin birth between the seed, your seed, and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? So here what we see is the usurpation of God's throne and position of authority. Adam and Eve take it upon themselves to decide what is good and what is evil. They take what is forbidden in order to gain a position like God, to gain knowledge and wisdom. Because of that, it then further enhances their pride and in the process begins the distance from God and from one another. The adversary of God and man is here pictured as a serpent, a beast. The beast overcomes Adam and Eve in temptation as they willingly give themselves over to his authority. The natural consequences that result is that rather than man living in dominion over the beasts of the field, they have now submitted themselves to the beast Enslaved as beasts themselves and following their own desires. When they should have been obedient, they were instead prideful, following their own wisdom in disobedience and rebellion. But even here, God pronounces, in spite of their sin, good news the first mention of the gospel that one day the seed of the woman from a virgin birth would come forward, a man, a new Adam, to crush the head of the authority of the beastly serpent. In the Bible, heads speak of authority. We learn this with Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the statue. The second Adam would crush the authority of the beast. But in doing so, he would be mortally wounded because this viper, this serpent, would bite his heel. And this is a picture of the sacrificial Messiah, the second Adam, the new Adam that would come. Adam and Eve had a choice to partake of life and be life in the world, In their servant kingship and choose to walk in the way of righteousness, much like the man talked about in Psalm 1 earlier. But instead, they chose to stiffen themselves in pride and walk in the way of wickedness. And this, dear friends, is the choice, the fork in the road that each of us have every minute, every hour, every day of our lives. We can either choose to pursue God and His will in active pursuit or fall to our own beastly drives and desires. So now, hopefully, you're fully reminded of the story of the creation and the fall, and we can jump forward in our Bibles to Daniel and see how the author of Daniel has embedded much of this same imagery in the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Would you turn back to Daniel chapter 1 with me to see some of what I'm talking about here? Daniel chapter 1. And what we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 1 as it's carried through to chapter 4 is this. Nebuchadnezzar's struggle between pride and humility. Nebuchadnezzar's struggle between, between pride and humility. And in seeing this, we're going to see a reminder of the first Adam. Nebuchadnezzar's struggle between pride and humility, a reminder of the first Adam. Are you with me so far? Yes. One person is with me. Are you with me so far? Yes. All right, good. Here in Daniel 1, we are introduced to two main characters, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, with the supporting actors of the other three Hebrew youths. The setting we are given is that of Babylon, back in the plain of Shinar, and these phrases, as we saw a few weeks ago, should send our minds back to the book of Genesis, and specifically, a certain story. What was that story? The Tower of Babel. The heart and the height of mankind's collective rebellion against God. But let's remember what is at the core of this story. On the one hand, here in chapter 1, you have Daniel, who is set before him the king's food. Delicacies that most likely were good for food, a delight to the eyes, and were intended, at least in the king's mind, to make one knowledgeable and wise. And he chooses to not take and to not eat. Instead, what does Daniel eat? Take a look at chapter 1, verse 12. He asks, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. The word behind the vegetables there is seed. It's give us the product of seeds, vegetation. Daniel is obedient, <clears throat> excuse me, in choosing to abstain from the delightful food he is tempted to take. And he does, does so in ultimate obedience to God. This is imagery of ultimate obedience foreshadowing the obedient second Adam that is to come one day, one who will undo the sin of the first Adam who took and ate. Now, let's look at more of how Daniel is described. Look at verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. We notice a few things here. Here he is declared to be part of the royal family. The Hebrew words behind this word, royal, this phrase, royal family, which is woodenly translated seed of the kingdom. Most of you have this at the bottom of your footnotes in your Bible. He is part of the seed of the kingdom. He is the seed, the offspring of the kingdom of David. Does that sound like anybody we know? Who does that sound like? Use your Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus. It's a characteristic that foreshadows the Messiah to come. He's also declared to be a youth without blemish. Now, this should hearken our minds back to the sacrificial offerings of the animals offered on the sacrificial altar of the tabernacle, foreshadowing the fact that only a young man without sin could be the sacrificial offering that would take away the sins of man. Who is the one that we know that's sinless and without blemish? Jesus. He's also declared to be ordained with wisdom from a very young age, already possessing God's wisdom innately. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Jesus. And lastly, at the end of the chapter, he's given reign and authority by Nebuchadnezzar because of his obedience and wisdom. Friends, Daniel is pictured quite boldly as a type, a picture, a foreshadow of the Messiah to come, the second Adam that would undo the sin and rebellion of the first Adam, the righteous Adam that would undo the way of the wicked Adam. But this point is not about Daniel, as you can see on the screen. So let's look at Nebuchadnezzar in contrast, in comparison to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is pictured not as the second Adam to come, but is put forward in contrast as a picture looking backward to the first Adam. The Bible declares that he is put in place as a sovereign king by God. He has a mission given by God to be the disciplinary rod against Israel, which we have looked at in past teachings. And his own pride or unwillingness to bow in submission to Yahweh has left him blind to the wisdom from God, blind to his mission. He is given authority and a mission by God, and yet his pride has blinded him. Nebuchadnezzar demonstrates this pride by overthrowing the seed of the kingdom and taking that which is not his, the act for which his kingdom will ultimately be disciplined. What is it that he takes that he should not take? Look with me again at Daniel 4. These are youths that are endowed with, what's the word there in your Bible, verse 4? They are endowed with? knowledge. What was the tree called that Adam was not supposed to take from? The tree of knowledge. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Nebuchadnezzar takes of that which bring knowledge but was not his to take. Daniel is obedient by not taking that which would give him knowledge. Nebuchadnezzar is disobedient. He takes that which is not his to gain knowledge. Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are set up in contrast as the first Adam, motivated in pride and earthly wisdom, and the second Adam, motivated in humble obedience and godly wisdom. Then in Daniel chapters 2 and 3, this theme and storyline is continued as Nebuchadnezzar is given a vision by God to humble himself under Yahweh's sovereign power because ultimately the nations and kingdoms of this world will be destroyed. But rather than humbling himself, Nebuchadnezzar makes yet another statement of supposed glory to God, but without the action of humbling himself. Rather than walk in humility, Nebuchadnezzar calls for an oath of allegiance in chapter 3. Rather than humbling himself to be the image of God, ruling in righteousness and justice, Nebuchadnezzar decides to make himself God and make an idol that reflects himself instead. Rather than being the thing made that reflects the image of the one who made it, Nebuchadnezzar makes himself a god in idolatry and is overcome by it. He is so overcome that he is pictured in chapter 3 as being contorted into a beastly rage, and he decides to sacrifice the three Hebrew offspring, the seed of the kingdom, that stand in obedience to Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar is morphed here from the first Adam to the very beastly serpent himself. Friends, this is the story that's pictured in the symbolism of Daniel 1 through 4. And this finally brings us to our text for today, chapter 4. Would you take a look there and read with me from Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. You with me so far? Okay. Daniel 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. There's that doxology. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. Is this a little bit of deja vu from the early part of the story? Yes, it is. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. It's leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Sounds really good, right? I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher. Creepy. That's really just angels. We'll talk about that later. A holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him, interesting, the tree just turned into a person, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men." This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Here, what we're given is Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the choice between the tree of life or beastly humiliation. Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the choice between the tree of life or beastly humiliation. We are coming here to the end of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. The story of Daniel will continue on, but most likely we're in the last decade of his life or shorter of Nebuchadnezzar's, not Daniel's. And the ride so far with Nebuchadnezzar has been bumpy. In three chapters, we've experienced a kind of whiplash between Nebuchadnezzar's prideful idolatry and his supposed repentance and praise to the one true God. But there is still a giant question of where his loyalties lie. Has he truly repented and submitted to the one true God? Or has he instead just added Yahweh to his already lengthy pantheon of Babylonian gods made in his own image? As we noted earlier, at the core of chapter four's storyline is the same question of the king's pride or humility. But what gives us some stability here and causes many theologians to wonder if Nebuchadnezzar did not actually repent is that on either side of chapter 4 is this compelling doxology, praise to the Most High God. Within this story, the vision with which Nebuchadnezzar is presented is really a choice between operating within God's design for who he was to be as king or not. It was a choice between being the tree of life he was intended to be or to be humbled by God by allowing him to be given over to the reality of his rebellious, beastly desires. In this, he is again picturing the first Adam. He had the opportunity to be the tree of life to the rest of creation, providing covering and provision, to be a king ruling over the world in the true image of God. But he instead shows prideful disobedience rather than bowing in obedience to the Most High God. But Nebuchadnezzar is unaware of this, so engrossed, so enslaved to his beastly flesh. He's unable to see his wavering between rebellion and praise. He's unable to see that he needs one in whom the Holy Spirit of God dwells, one to reveal to him the truth of God's mysteries. And so Daniel... A foreshadow of the second Adam, the Messiah to come, is called for to speak the truth of God to him. Nebuchadnezzar describes his dream. And in verse 10 through 12, it is described as a tree in the midst of the earth, from which its top is in connection with heaven itself. It covered the whole earth. It was beautiful and able to provide food for all. All the beasts of the earth were provided by its covering. The author of Daniel here harkens back to the garden scene we just saw, a scene in which God himself provides for his people and installs mankind as his sub-regents, as kings, to provide for and cover all of creation in the dominion that they were given, mankind, Adam, ruling in loving service over the beasts of the field. In chapter 2 of Daniel, Daniel reminds us that it is God who puts kings, even Nebuchadnezzar, in place, just like he did Adam. In the center there, you see on the screen, God removes kings and sets up kings. Nebuchadnezzar had been put in place to lead, guide, provide for, and protect the whole of the known world at the time. But in his pride and idolatry, he had betrayed God's commission, like the first Adam, and now would be judged. An angelic being is then pictured here called a watcher. He comes down from heaven and proclaims a judgment over the tree, over Nebuchadnezzar. The Jewish apocalyptic literature outside the Bible describes these beings as angels watching over the events of earthly man and helping carry out the judgments of the Most High God. We might go into that a bit more next week. But then look with me at Daniel 4, 14 through 16. Daniel 4, 14 through 16. What happens there? Well, this angel cuts down the tree. And if you're a tree that is beautiful and providing for all, friends, is there anything more humiliating than being cut? Your fruit and your leaves stripped off. Even your boughs cut down. What happens here is the humbling of the tree. We could say even that it is humiliated. The word humiliate comes from the Latin word that means to be made humble. Raise your hand if you love to be humiliated. In our arrogant society, humiliation is the height of sin. If you humiliate me, you have sinned against me. But friends, we need to be humbled. Not only is he, this tree, but also Nebuchadnezzar, metaphorically cut off at the knees and removed from a position of sovereignty, but then he is also given over in this dream to his beastly, fleshly pride to such an extent that he becomes a beast himself and is exiled from comfortable provision to the wilderness. His mind is changed and given over to become a beast himself. No longer could this first Adam figure rule in loving service over the beasts of the field, He was now to be ruled as a beast, enslaved to a mind that can comprehend nothing but his own beastly urges, a perfect picture of the first Adam, and all of mankind that has been enslaved under the authority of our own pervasive depravity rather than the will and wisdom of God. All of this, the watchers declare, is to proclaim the knowledge that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest, the humblest of men. This is a foreshadow of Daniel chapter 7 when we look at the Messiah to come. Nebuchadnezzar perfectly pictures the story of the first Adam, a story that, to our great disgrace, friends, each of us is all too familiar, or at least, if we're not too blinded, we should be. Within our own homes, within our own lives, We have been given a great commission to use our lives, our time, our talents, our treasure, our parenting, our marriages, our jobs, our relationships to do one thing and one thing only, reflect the character of our God. We have been given authority over our small little corners of the world to be a tree of life to all who know us in that they will see the true tree of life, God himself, the creator and provider of all. Like Nebuchadnezzar, like the first Adam though, each of us has been faced with the choice of pursuing humility or pride. And time and time again, we have each chosen rebellious pride and self-adulation, forcing our reign over the kingdom that should truly be God's alone. Every one of us has been more concerned with our own kingdom than with the kingdom of God the Father. And we, like Nebuchadnezzar, were given over to our own beastly sin as a result. Rather than reigning over the beasts of the earth, even reigning over the beastly urges within ourselves, we have instead succumbed to being at their mercy. When Cain was struggling with sin, God spoke to him these powerful powerful words in Genesis chapter 4. Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, meaning if you obey, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, notice the metaphor, the the imagery here. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Friends, what crouches at the door? A beast, a lion. And how active is it to rule over sin? Can you be passive and rule? No, passive rulers are failed rulers. To rule over it is to discipline it. Dear friends, the message of God's truth in our own experience is that we allowed the beastly sin that was waiting to devour us to overcome us. In the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, this is what's happened to us. You were dead. Each of us is guilty. We stand in the same judgment of wrath that was rightly deserved by Nebuchadnezzar, rightly deserved by that first Adam. If you are listening, dear friend, you must understand that if left to your own devices, you likewise will fall to your own beastly desires. You and I rightly deserve the wrath of God for the fact that we have been ruled by sin and the beastliness inside. Do you, like Nebuchadnezzar, need to be brought to ultimate humiliation before you will look heavenward and declare your need for a savior to save you from your sin of pride? Do I? What level of humiliation do we need in order to admit our need? Today is the day for us to realize our need for the one who can save us from our own prideful sin. Glory be to God that the message of the gospel is that there is one who can save us. The second Adam who came to save us and conquer our pride. And he did so, friends, in the humiliation of the cross. Praise God for his power to conquer our pride with his own humiliation. Amen? Amen. Praise God for his power to conquer our pride with his own humiliation. For the people of God who were in exile under pagan kings, the message from Daniel that God can conquer the proud with the humble was a message that brought strength, endurance, and hope. For Christian slaves, for Christian martyrs throughout history, this allowed them to stand firm in faith under the persecuting hand of their oppressors. This base message that God will conquer earthly oppressive rulers will be foundational as we look more into Daniel especially chapter 7 and the enthronement of the son of man. But for us as believers this morning all this imagery we've looked at today it shines a bright light on the greatest victory of all, the victory that is in the fact that God conquered the pride and the sin of man with his own great humiliation at the cross of Calvary. The God that spans the universe with his hands, that sets up kings and that knocks them down, that gives you your very breath, that allows you life. That God so loved his creation, the cosmos, this world, and each one of you that he stepped into fleshly form to experience his own humiliation. In his death on the cross, Jesus suffered a humiliation that you and I can never fully comprehend. He became the sacrifice that bore the weight of our sins on the altar of the cross, paying the price that you and I owe to a holy God with his own life. And then in his resurrection three days later, Jesus proved that he had forever broken free those who are his own from our enslavement to sin and death and the requirement that we serve the passions of our flesh and the desires of our bodies. God used the foolishness of the cross to bring to nothing the pride of mankind. In Paul's words to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Praise God for his power to conquer our pride with his own humiliation. Now, you might say, "Oh, Hans, hold on a second. I'm not that bad of a person. You keep saying beast. I'm not a beast. I'd never consider myself beastly. But friend, the Bible says to us that before we were born, we were conceived in the original sin of the first Adam, of mankind. And this is why you and I need a savior. You cannot earn righteousness on your own. You cannot humble yourself. It's as if our knees are locked in pervasive depravity. We cannot bow to the king. We are obligated to our own sin. You and I, like Nebuchadnezzar, are enslaved, obligated to sin because of the sin of our first father. And this is why we need the second Adam, the perfect Adam, the sinless sacrifice, the source of wisdom, the obedient one foreshadowed by Daniel. Turn with me again uh, to see what Paul says about this. Let's look at his language in Romans chapter 5. Look at Romans chapter 5 with me. Romans 5, 12 through 21. It says there in Romans five twelve. Therefore... For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace... And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God for his power to conquer our pride with his humiliation. Turn with me a little bit to the right to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul tells the church, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or taken, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The first Adam, Nebuchadnezzar, and you and I, in our sinful pride, desired to be our own gods deciding our own version of good and evil, sin and righteousness, desiring to reign over our own lives. We desired to grasp equality with God and steal it through our prideful self-exaltation. But Christ, as the perfect second Adam, instead emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of the cross. When you look up that word, humbled, himself, in the Greek, behind it, means to humiliate oneself. Praise God for his gospel. The message that in Christ, God conquered our pride with his own humiliation. Brothers and sisters, do you see what your God has done for you? Do you see what God has done for you? Praise God for his power to conquer our pride with his own humiliation. This week, as you meditate on this mind-blowing truth, we need to ask ourselves a simple application question. In what circumstances is the Lord asking me to humble myself? Write that down. It's your one question for this week. In what circumstances is the Lord asking me to humble myself? Not how should someone else humble themselves. How is the Lord asking me to humble myself? In his first letter to the church, Peter writes to the church, and he says this in 1 Peter 5, verse 5 through 11. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is calling the whole church to examine themselves and answer the question, how is God asking you to humble yourselves? Perhaps, friends, it's in the matter of turning your life over to Christ that you need to humble yourself today, to admit that you have sinned against a holy God, and today is the day that you need to give your life over to him in submission. Maybe you are like Nebuchadnezzar. You've uttered praise. You've raised your hands in doxology, but at the core of your heart, you still reign over your life. If that's you and you need to repent today, you can do it right where you sit. You can cry out to God in your heart and mind and say, Lord, please forgive me for my prideful rebellion. And then I would love to chat with you after the service about what it is to follow Christ in discipleship. Perhaps uh, the humbling is in the area of sin. Maybe you have a pet sin in your life that's been breathing on your ear, it's so close, it's been crouching at the door and rather than fighting it, you've been petting it and feeding it. watering it, thinking you can cage it. But friends, a lion will eventually break out of that cage and destroy you. If it's sin, what sin are you allowing to overcome you that you need to humble yourselves and confess to God and to one another? Maybe it's in dealing with all the chaos around you over the last few months or year. Maybe your response to the chaos or Maybe even your response to how society is dealing with it or the government or even this church has not been the heart of Christ, but it's been anger and bitterness, pride and vitriol. Is this the area that the Lord is asking you to humble yourself? Or perhaps it's relational. Perhaps God has been asking you to go to your spouse or to your children or a friend or a boss or someone in this church and humiliate yourself before them. Humble yourself before them. To admit, I've been acting in pride, fighting to be an authority, fighting to have power, but I want to confess it and humble myself. Friends, in what circumstance is the Lord asking you to humble yourself today? A very practical question we need to ask as we prepare our hearts to dig even further into the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. And so that's where we'll end this morning. Where is the Lord asking you to humble yourself?